You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Dee Kager. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, May 8th. 2023. Later in the program, WFHB environmental correspondent Zero Rose asks local eco-architect and sustainability pioneer Bill Brown about the environmental considerations involved in constructing energy-efficient public libraries that Brown designed for two communities in Indiana. So these are areas that are not within the responsibility of the city or the county even. There are some gray areas and people might be surprised to know about that. That's Dave DeKid from the Bloomington Trash Force, a group of volunteers cleaning up litter in neglected parts of the city. May the trash force be with you later in the show on a new episode of Activate featuring real people working for positive change in our community. But first, your daily headlines. The Ellettsville Plan Commission held a public hearing regarding a moratorium on certain commercial uses at their meeting on May 4th. Planning Director Denise Line explained that they want a moratorium to give them time to update their unified development ordinance. As you know, there are some prime real estate locations that have opened up um, in Ellettsville, whether it's due to the close of another business or a vacant lot. And we'll be starting at some point on the unified development ordinance and rewriting our zoning. I just couldn't hear. I'm, I'm oh, <laughs> sorry. So um, we want to um, preserve these locations because some of uh, the zoning districts for those locations may change um, throughout the UDO process. So we're asking for um, the moratorium until the UDO is adopted. Town attorney Darla Brown said that the date they had initially set was for October 1st, 2023. She said, however, that they could pick a different date. Line suggested that since they are already behind schedule, they set the new date to February of 2024. Commissioner Pamela Samples said she thought that was fine. Yeah, we're already, according to Taylor Seifert's timeline to start the UDO, we're already um, about three months going, two and a half months behind schedule. So I'm concerned we won't finish by October. So, so you want to reset it? Yeah, I was thinking February of 2024. During public comment, Envision Ellettsville member Dan Rary asked where the moratorium would take place. Line responded. Where is this moratorium going to take place? What properties? Um, it'll be for the town of Ellettsville jurisdiction. So it'll just be all Ellettsville and commercial and industrial districts. So if anybody is applying for a building permit... Or is this just for rezone? Or? Well, commercial uses are going to have to come before the plan commission. So um, if somebody approaches us for one of the uses in the moratorium, we'd have to tell them they'd have to wait until the UDO okay. is adopted or the deadline. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Thank you. You're welcome. The commission voted unanimously to give a positive recommendation to the town council with the deadline changed to February 1st, 2024. Next, the commission discussed a resolution to change how wide driveways can be. Line explained that driveways that are being made right now are too large, which violates the width requirements in the town code. So right now, Ellettsville town code um, specifies a 20 foot, 22 foot driveway width at the property line. The problem we're encountering is either a three car garage or what you see here. And this is about 33 feet at the property line. And we have so many violations about this, we can't keep up with them. Um, I think when the code was written for 22 feet at the property line, um, there weren't the size of houses being built and constructed as they are now. We're getting some huge houses in um, Ellettsville. So um, the builders are not happy with the code. And, and as I said, we have several violations and we're holding driveway permits have been submitted for um, larger driveways because of the code. So I talked to Darla about how we could change the code because we are gonna be updating the UDO. And she suggested the resolution to give me the authority to waive the 22 foot requirement at the property line. The ordinance would change the width requirements from 22 feet to a maximum of 36 feet. Line added that to be compliant, some driveways are 22 feet across at the road and then increase their width once they are four feet onto their property. What happens is um, they can go wider once they go past about four feet past the property line. So it'd be 22 feet and then they could go wider to however wide they needed. But then what happens is then you have everybody ramping the curb to get on the driveway and drive up. So it's just causing a lot of problems. Commission member Dan Swafford asked about what they would do about individuals who have already been fined. Line said that they haven't fined that many people because they do comply after being informed they are in violation of the town code. There haven't been many fined because we usually request that they cut that four-foot strip um, out of the concrete so they become compliant. And usually we do get compliant, but it's just everywhere now. The commission unanimously approved the resolution to change the width of the driveway from 22 feet to 36 feet at the property line. The next Ellisville Plan Commission meeting will be held on June 1st. In today's feature, WFHB environmental correspondent Zero Rose asks local eco-architect and sustainability pioneer Bill Brown about the environmental considerations involved in constructing energy-efficient public libraries that Brown designed for two communities in Indiana. We turn to Zero Rose for more.
Bill Brown is Assistant Director for Strategy and Engagement for IU's Environmental Resilience Institute. He was hired to be the first Director of Sustainability at IU in 2009, and he helped the university achieve a STARS Gold Rating in 2018. Bill was elected to the National Board of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education in 2012. He is the former chair of the Indiana chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council, and he taught graduate courses in the IU O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs and J. Irwin Miller Architecture Program. Uh, Bill is a graduate of Indiana University and Ball State University's R. Wayne Estopanel College of Architecture and Planning, and he and his wife, Dr. Linda Brown, are restoring a solar-powered Griffey Creek farm north of Bloomington. Thank you for being with us today, Bill. My pleasure. And further, Bill was a member of the AIA National uh, Committee on the Environment and a participant in the greening of the White House in 1992 to 94. His architectural profile or portfolio includes dozens of public schools and libraries, including the first certified energy positive public library in America, built in Christney, Indiana in 2009. And he's the recipient of two AIA National presidential citations. So uh, uh, why don't we start with that uh, energy positive library in Christie, Indiana. Why don't you kind of uh, explain that term for our viewers, what, what you mean by uh, energy positive? Well, an energy positive building is, is one that produces more energy than it uses on site. That is a very interesting story of a uh, very small community, Christie, had a population of around 500 people. And uh, somehow they were able to get funding for a feasibility study for their library. And we got that contract and I went to Christney. And when I showed up there, they had a huge crowd of people. It was about a quarter of the population of Christney showed up at the feasibility study meeting, which I'd never seen that anywhere else before. But I asked a few questions. I said, do you have any money? No. Um, do you have a site? No. Do you have a storefront that you're going to convert into a library? No. Uh, but you've got permission from the library district to do a branch library. No, they said no. Uh, I thought that was going to be the shortest feasibility study in history. But um, a room full of people like that meant that they had extreme amount of social capital. And um, that's something you can always work with. And so the journey began to try to figure out how to solve that problem. And uh, one of the first idea was to use the elementary school media center, uh, put another outside door on it and call it a branch library and, and allow townspeople to use it. The school corporation said, no, that was a uh, violation of security, but they eventually said we would donate an acre of land for the library. And then it went back to the, uh, library district and said, would you consent to having a library branch in Christney if we could find a way to pay for it? And uh, they said, no, we just, they just couldn't afford to upkeep and uh, all that. So the original strategy there was really unique where we said, what if we got you a free library building paid for by federal grant money and it didn't have any utility bills because we would pirate by solar power and uh, they said, well, that would be interesting. We're, we're interested in how that would work. So they were able to get a federal grant 
for their library, and that included the solar power as a geothermal heating and cooling, a very well insulated building. And uh, 10 years later, they still haven't paid a utility bill. And they have a library, and it's part of the uh, Lincoln Heritage Library District. So that was the town of Christney, the school corporation, and the library district collaborating to pull that miracle off. So that, that's one of my favorite uh, sustainable design stories because it also talks about the importance of community capacity and how that social capital is so important. And so that was, was that a from the ground up fresh building then? Yes, that was a new building on a, again, an acre next to the school. And uh, just behind the library is the outdoor learning lab for the elementary school. And the, the solar panels for that project actually went on what is essentially a shelter house, an outdoor structure that allows people to meet under the solar panels and including the students. Uh, so it is a multi-use outdoor facility that is next to the library. And uh, was building from scratch, did that allow you to uh, make it a lot more efficient? Well, there is a trade-off there. A new building can be built to be very efficient, uh, but you're also uh, using a lot of embodied carbon. And you know, if they had an existing storefront that they could convert into a branch, that would be even more efficient uh, because the embodied carbon that's in the materials of the building that's existing. So an existing building is always a greener building than a new building, no matter how energy efficient the new building is. Yeah, with the adaptive reuse being yes. first option, if at all possible. Uh, were there any innovative materials involved in that? Um, well, that's another interesting story in that we originally designed it to be made of insulated concrete forms, uh, which is a, you know, uh, looks like Lego blocks and you pour the concrete in the middle and it's very strong, but it's also very well insulated. You have the thermal mass of the concrete. So um, that's what we originally designed. And then um, when we bid it, it's a public project, the local contractors did not know how to work with that material. So uh, we actually redesigned it to be stick built with uh, conventional wood frame construction. And uh, that was a little bit unconventional because we used a two by six stick frame with uh, 24 inch on centers. And then we had a, uh, an inch of insulation on the outside of that frame to bring it up to uh, a pretty high uh, efficiency level. I think the EUI of that project was like 14 or 15, which a, a typical library would typically be five to six times that much uh, energy use per square foot. That's what the EUI is, is energy use. Energy use intensity, yes, it's a, a measure of the efficiency of a building. And you can look at the EUIs of typical types of buildings like libraries or schools, and then you can uh, use that as a benchmark for your own project. So was that a bit of a trade-off from what you were originally trying to do? No, actually, it was it was uh, exceeded our expectations in terms of the performance. Uh, and that is one thing that inspired me later to look at affordable energy positive design that uses less uh, less uh, unique forms of construction. So 
again, uh, a wood frame construction is very normal throughout Indiana and everybody knows how to use it. Everybody knows how to bid it. And so uh, I have in my own work since that time, look for those simple systems that are easy to, for everybody to use and they're not very exotic. It's not rocket science and uh, it makes those projects more affordable and uh, easier to pull off. And uh, there are the trade-offs with, with the deforestation, I suppose you're talking about materials that were tree farmed and then that's set against the cement, the carbon uh, and concrete cement production. Yeah, I think, um, again, if we had done the insulated concrete forms, you'd have a lot of concrete and you'd have a lot of foam. And both of those are intensive in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and embodied carbon. So going with uh, something with low embodied carbon, like uh, a wood product, uh, especially if you contain that, uh, obtain that locally or nearby, uh, that has much lower embodied carbon than concrete or steel. So um, ultimately, that was a better choice in regards to embodied carbon as well as to um, constructability and affordability. And I thought I saw something about fly ash. I'm not sure if it was with that building or with a different uh, library also in Indiana. Yeah, there was a, a library that uh, we did in central um, Warwick County. It's the Ohio Township Central Library at the time. I think it's called the Bell Road branch now. but. That was a 36,000 square foot public library where in Warwick County, they were looking at reusing their fly ash. They produce a lot of fly ash in two power plants. And um, that is a hazardous waste product. But it turns out if you embed it in concrete, it becomes fused into the concrete. It becomes benign and it can replace other parts of the concrete mix and make the concrete. Uh, as strong or stronger than a typical mix. So what we were looking at there was using the local fly ash because they were contemplating building a an autoclaved aerated concrete plant that would incorporate local fly ash. Ultimately, that plant was not built, but this was a proof of concept that uh, you could use that material. And autoclaved aerated concrete is foamed concrete. Oddly, it's foamed with a, an aluminum powder that makes it um, blow up like uh, bread dough with yeast in it. And those bubbles uh, make it very porous, lightweight. That gives it an insulation value, but it's still concrete and it's still fire resistant. Um, typically, those are eight inch thick walls and it comes in uh, big blocks that you can saw with hand tools or uh, panels. We actually use both big. Uh, panels, wall panels, and then individual blocks in certain cases. So uh, some of the advantages of that material in that project were one, it was uh, demonstrating local fly ash being used in the mix, very quiet, very fire resistant. The material is the structure, but it's also the interior finish and the exterior finish. At the same time, you put a plaster on the outside and you put a plaster on the inside and you have your wall basically. And um, the fact that it's easy to manipulate and saw and shape meant that we could have a, a, a sculptural columns and things that 
would be difficult to do in other ways, but it also made the building about 30% more energy efficient uh, in terms of the shell. We, in that project, used a uh, an elevated floor, a raised floor system, which the floor void became the plenum and you delivered the air conditioning and the heating through the underfloor space. That saved a lot of energy because you don't have ductwork. Um, you don't have any exposed ductwork in the ceiling, so the ceiling could be exposed structure and no ceiling. Um, so that was that was an exploration of how do you do a building that's very energy efficient and very easy to change in the future. Uh, it had long span trusses that made a sawtooth clear story and the tall part of the sawtooth let northern daylight in. And the south facing slope was where we put solar panels and solar hot water. And uh, so you had solar on the south slope, you had cool daylight on the north coming in, and that structure allowed the floor to be spanned without any columns so they could rearrange the stacks or whatever was in the middle uh, easily. And since that had a raised floor system, the, any partition walls could easily be moved around in the future. So it was meant to be an easily reconfigurable library space. So multiple innovations on that project. And that was the first project that I used solar on. And that inspired the solution at Christie was to uh, scale the solar down to the size of a small library and power the whole thing. In this episode, may the force be with you. The Bloomington Trash Force is a group of volunteers cleaning up litter in neglected parts of the city, and they want you to help. This segment is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org or by emailing getconnected at bloomington.in. Gov. Welcome to Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion and make a difference. Hey, I'm Dave DeKid from Bloomington Trash Force. Yeah, it's a volunteer trash pickup group. It started out with two individuals and then we thought, hey, why don't we start to invite other people? So Brian and Vicki were picking up in my neighborhood and I told them, hey, I like to pick up trash too. Can I join you sometime? And we exchanged numbers. And so we started picking up as a trio, and that's how it was born. We established a social media presence and, um, yeah, just started inviting people to join us and do group pickups. 
People are responsible for bringing their own gloves and their own grabber tools, but we supply the blue bags that the city issues because you can put those bags, you can leave them anywhere and just call the city and say, hey, we did a group pickup or I just finished a neighborhood pickup and I've left the bags in this location. You can take a picture of it, send them an email, and they'll make sure that it gets picked up. So every now and then I'll go by and grab like 10 or 20 bags and we'll have them available for our group. Uh, our volunteers will identify different areas like really in any area of the city, unfortunately, trash just kind of builds up. The crazy thing is like we found insane things like propane tanks and <laughs> um, we found a, like a gilded framed picture of Elvis. Um, we found uh, TV sets, you know, and there's no electricity there, so I'm not sure where that's getting plugged in, all kinds of stuff. The areas where we clean up are not in city parks. There's a ridge kind of on the uh, eastern side of the railroad tracks owned by the railroad. So the city says that's actually not our responsibility. We have crews that do clean up along the sides of the roads and in the parks. So these are areas that are not within the responsibility of the city or the county even. There are some gray areas and people might be surprised to, to know about that. I started becoming aware of environmental issues in general when I studied abroad in Finland in 1991. And uh, I visited a Montessori school there and saw how they used every single thing that they had, any packaging turned into a container for pencils or crayons or, or whatever. I'm huge into process improvement and continuous improvement. That's my formal training. Um, and in my day job at the city, I do a lot of long-term planning things that take a lot of coordination and are not easy problems to solve. So picking up trash is easy. It's instant gratification. You know, I can do a before picture of a street and an after picture of a street and see the difference. So that's what attracted me to Trash Pickup. Go to Facebook and type in three words, Bloomington Trash Force. And if you are going on a solo pickup and you, wanna, you want people to know that you're doing that and they can join you, you can post that to the feed. Or if you would like to get in touch with me, then you can message me at the Facebook page also. Bloomington Trash Force. So just go to Facebook and in the search feature, just type in those three words, Bloomington Trash Force. We're, we're the only ones with that name. Again, I'm Dave Tuff from Bloomington Trash Force. Bring the force to your neighborhood. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.
Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Horowski-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Action Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Activate is produced by Chad Carruthers and Michelle Moss. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Brandon Blewett. And I'm Dee Kager. Thank you for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB.